1: Welcome to Covert Actions and National Security Podcast, a podcast where we discuss a spectrum of activities concerning covert operations, intelligence, counterintelligence, unconventional warfare, assassinations, espionage, spycraft, technology, and more. Now, let's enter the operational world with Dr.
2: Carlos. Welcome back, everybody. Well, we have a wonderful returning guest, Dr. Dick Thompson, Mac V. Sog, Dr. Dick Thompson. We're going to be talking to him, but with me today, again, co-hosting Tier 1 operator, Sean Taylor. Hey, Sean, how are you?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back again, pal.
2: I love it, my friend. I love it. So you're wondering who is Henry L. Dick Thompson? Well, he's Mac V. Sog, as I mentioned, and he just wrote a new book, which I highly recommend. It's really a great read. I finished it in a matter of a few hours because it was just a, such a great read, it was really fast. SOG codenamed Dynamite, and when you hear his journeys, I know what you're going to say are these even real? Because some of the stuff is just <laughs> out of this world. Um, but he's going to talk about it, and we're going to talk about his book today. His book is book one, and SOG codenamed Dynamite, and Mac V. SOG's one dash O's personal journal. I probably said that wrong. But before we get started, make sure to share, subscribe, hit that like button. You know we like it. Let's not waste any more time. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dick Thompson or a.k.a. Dynamite. Welcome back, sir. Sorry about that, folks. i actually working on my grip with Theraputty and dropped it on the computer. So be it. Either way, welcome to the show, Dr. Dick Thompson, a.k.a. Dynamite. Welcome back. Thank you. So, Dick, I wanted to start off because in the book, you start off with the story of how you got into Mac v. Sog. But before we do that, I wanted to get a little bit of background of your academic background. This is what makes you even more unique when you start hearing the stories, at least from my angle, because when I'm listening to this, I'm thinking this guy got a Ph.D. in psychology as well. And he went through all this stuff. I mean, that's an enormous testament to you and the type of person you are. But so what is your educational background? What are you doing right now for work?
1: Uh, I'm the CEO of High Performing Systems, a management consulting company uh, that I started when I got out of the military. So uh, we have clients around the world. We go in and we do everything from strategic planning, team building. I've been doing a lot more uh, the last few years around decision making under stress. So bringing in a lot of the, um, the, the SOG combat kind of stuff. Um, things that I used to do, you know, when when you're standing on the skid of the chopper coming in to the LZ and you don't know who's there, what's there, uh, you're running everything through your mind. Where do I go when I hit the ground? You know, are we coming into the right position? Can we go to the direction we were planning on it? Uh, is there anybody there to, to welcome us? So, and if they are, um, learning how to not get too distracted with the bullets there's a lot of them coming but if you start focusing on those you have to unfocus on what you're supposed to do um, and just getting so that you manage the fear so that the fear becomes your fuel it generates a lot of energy a lot of adrenaline a lot of cortisol um, but you've got to be able to manage it in the right direction or you become ineffective
2: I love the way you say "Who's there to welcome you?" Because <laughs> they definitely didn't give you a fruit basket when you got there. They
1: yeah, they have a lot of a lot of little treats for you, you know, when you come, you know, RPGs or whatever. But um, a lot of things. So,
2: and your doctorate is think- in psychology, right? I'm sorry, Asha. Yeah, no, no, go ahead.
1: Yeah, it's it's in psychology. I um, before I went in the military, I was uh, on a chemistry scholarship um because i wanted to be a research chemist and i but i was afraid based on what i was hearing on the news at night that vietnam was going to end you know before i finished my degree and i was going to miss it so i decided to you know just take a break go to vietnam you know go enlist you know i'd have to enlist for three years so i'll go enlist go to vietnam do my thing come back um <laughs> continue with school um but once i once i got in um you know i, I saw the ranger stuff i wanted to do that um the, the army was fine i mean they were paying me to run around and play army shoot guns throw hand grenades do all that kind of stuff and i thought well this is pretty cool but as i learned more about it this man um Rangers, you get to do a lot more stuff than this. Special forces, you get even more. So I said, you know, I I'd like to do that. So I uh, went to OCS, went to Airborne School, started jumping out of airplanes. Went to um, the Third Special Forces Group at Bragg. Went through the qualification course there. Went through uh, the Ranger School qualification. Uh, then went to um, Vietnam and, you know, as part of my in processing there in the fifth group, the guy that was doing the final part of the in processing basically held up a recruiting poster, um, not a real one, but a psychological one. And he said, you know, you volunteered for everything. To join the army to do this to do that the rangers special forces vietnam i'm going to give you a chance for the ultimate volunteer assignment and i don't offer this to many people and i'm thinking i think i think he's probably making that up but then he said i'm gonna i'm gonna give you a chance to volunteer to go anywhere do anything and not tell anybody about it for 20 years so i i mean that was like holding up a poster i'm 21 years <laughs> old my prefrontal cortex doesn't work yet i don't know i'm not bulletproof i don't know that i can be killed out there i want excitement i want to go do all this stuff and he said you can do anything and and you can even talk about it i said i can do that you know and he said well you have to sign some documents you know, here's a non-disclosure agreement, you know, for 20 years, unless you want to go to jail. Uh, here's a volunteer statement to say that you have to go on at least six of these missions uh, before you can leave the organization. And I said, well, you know, I can do that, even though you won't tell me what they are. Um, so it sounded pretty cool. I volunteered, signed all the paperwork. And the next day, I, I was on my way into a black hole that I didn't know existed. People didn't know existed, and uh, everybody thought I was a uh, assigned in Vietnam. That I was fighting in Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam was where my mail came to, uh, but all of our techn- all of our actual missions were in other countries. So I. I've deployed you know, like six different uh missions or countries on uh combat missions. And we would plan, rehearse, and do everything in Vietnam. And then we would go to other countries uh, to meet some interesting people and have conversations with them about um uh, what we wanted them to do or not do. And uh, you know, so that that was pretty interesting.
2: Um, you have
1: something you can ask?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm curious as to before you were offered the opportunity to uh, go Mac- MACV SOG or, or engage in something that you didn't truly understand at that time. Uh, I'm curious as to if you have always been that way as a young boy leading up to that moment, or was that something that was created within you? While you were going through the basic training process or the qualification process, was it uh, a gamble for you? Or did you feel deep inside of you that that's what you were always looking for?
1: From the time I was about four years old, I was very interested in the military. I came from a military family. Uh, At at one point, uh, I had five uncles and my father all deployed in World War II at the same time. Um, So I came from a family like that. And then my father got called back to go to Korea. Um, And, you know, so I I was interested in it. I asked questions all the time. How is it organized? How do you do this? Um, Always interested in hunting, shooting, any kind of gun. Uh, Even as a small kid, go spend the night out in the woods alone, um, you know, five, six years old. We had a, we were on kind of a farm, so I could just go out and, uh, you know, sleep out in the woods, learn to track animals, do all that kind of stuff. So I had been on a path like that. Uh, then the the movie *Darby's Rangers* came out, you know, and I thought, yes, um, you know, that's my thing. So I started asking more. Uh, I found out my uh, my father had been in the Rangers for a while when he, he was in. He gave me a little information but not much i started uh, my own little army recruited my cousins to begin with and got all of them in and we played army we built forts we did those kinds of, of things in the book you'll see a picture of the log book the actual log book that i created wherever we had everybody's name in it and their ranks and the, the one court martial that we had is uh, in the book uh, we had to you know, remove somebody from from our uh, army. So anyway, I, w- I was in it until <laughs> I was thirteen, and then I was sabotaged. I uh, I received a chemistry set for Christmas, <laughs> and it had all kinds of things in it. And at that time, there was a a program called Shock Shock Theater that would come on at midnight on Saturday nights, and it was about monsters and Frankenstein and and. Vampires, and you know, you'd see these laboratories, and they were experimenting on people and trying to bring them back alive and different things. So, I started doing the same kinds of things with birds or rats or whatever creatures I could get. I just never managed to swap a brain and get it to work right. You know, I could cram it in the the skull, but they just didn't come back alive for me, even (laughs) run high voltage through them. (laughs) Surprising. (laughs) <laughs> and then, you know, so all through high school, I was doing that. But then, um, you know, when I thought I was going to miss out on, on Vietnam, I needed to take a break. But the break was to be three years and then come back to chemistry. But once once I got in the military and, you know, saw what was going on, and I saw a guy with a Ranger tab on, uh, he was a drill sergeant, first morning at the uh, induction center. He came through about 3.30 in the morning, Flipped the lights on, screaming, hollering, telling everybody to get in front of their bunks. He started just immediately pushing over, you know, the the bunk beds. So the guy on top would have a long way to hit the floor. I got up quickly and got in front of my my bunk, and I was watching this guy, and I said, he's not any bigger than me. But nobody's going to challenge this guy. I mean, he was, you know, relatively short, but nobody's going to mess with him. And then I saw that black and gold Ranger tab, and I said, okay, I'm hooked. And then when he got finally got us outside and got us in the formation, and we started to the mess hall, and he started a Jody call of, you know, I want to be an airborne Ranger. I want to live a life of danger, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. You know, I can do Rangers for three years. So, yeah, I just... Kind of ate up the whole process once I got in, so and,
0: well that's uh, interesting because uh, your the story that you just relayed is not too different than my own story. i my mom tells me that from the age of five I was talking about wanting to be in the military, wanting to be in the army. I had all the same uh, uh, kind of interesting childhood <clears throat> moments where I would i I hunted every single day uh, all year long uh, for many years. And uh, hunting or fishing by myself, I'd I go out and spend as many hours as I could till nighttime and then come home real late at night and sleep and get up in the morning, go do it again the next day. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how I, I raised myself out in the bush right up until uh, high school. And then I put my name into the uh, infantry uh, trade and uh, went, went through the infantry process, basic training, saw the right guys at the time who had the right tabs on their shoulders and thought, oh, that guy's different. What is it about that guy that I want to be like? And so then that led to kind of like yourself where uh, it was much later into my career. At the time, uh, tier one special operations didn't exist in Canada. The team is called Joint Task Force Two. And uh, because JTF Two didn't exist, There was nobody to say, hey, why don't you try out for that team? But what they did do when the team was being formed up uh, very quietly, very secretly, uh, a memo went out and and basically said uh, the same thing that you were told. And it was, uh, we can't tell you what it's going to be. We can't tell you where you're going to go. We can't tell you why. We can't tell you for how long. You'll basically go do things that we can't tell you about. Are you interested? And I thought, oh, yes, I am huh. very interested. Yeah. And it just felt right to me. And so um, that uh, was the formation of Joint Task Force 2. I entered into a team that didn't formally exist and, and hadn't existed the week before. But, uh, you know, the next week I was trying out for sele- selection to that unit. And so it just felt right to me all along the way. So maybe uh, a similar trajectory to mm-hmm. yourself.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. They just have it's like holding up a recruiting poster, you know, and you just say, Oh, yeah, that's me. That's what I want to do. I don't know yeah. what it is, but I want to yeah. do it. That's right. That's how I felt as well.
2: <laughs> By the way, folks, uh, Sean Taylor is also co hosting a podcast called The Collective, which is on YouTube every day at 11 a.m. Pacific time on YouTube with uh, <clears throat> Master Corporal of that name, Master Corporal Chance Pearls. Uh, Chance so you catch that as well. You know, Dick, in your book, saw a code name Dynamite the end of that chapter, you both just referenced one of your lessons learned. I love that part in the book, by the way. When you're on the right path, you can feel it. When you step off the path, it doesn't feel right. Get back on the path and stay on the path. But then you go on to say there are multiple paths for everyone. But what is the best one for you? Did you find yourself besides the chemistry and and military?
1: I knew I had the... uh, the chemistry path was still there if I wanted to do that later on. So, but at the time, I could tell, I was back on the military path. I was on the, you know, the special ops path. That's that's what I like to do. That's what I've been doing as I was growing up. You know, my, my goal uh, when I was younger, you know, before I went in the military, my goal was to get to the point where I could track an ant through a cornfield to get my tracking skills good enough that I could I never got there, but that was kind of my goal. Uh, I could track you. If if you were out there, I would find, you know, a limb you'd broken or pushed aside or a footprint. And, and I I practiced and studied and learned how to be able to tell which direction you're going, if you're going fast, going slow, carrying a load. How long it had been since you you'd been there? How many people went down that trail? Those are all skills that I was able to use, you know, later on uh, in the the special ops missions. Um, but just and I was I was born very fortunate in that I had spidey senses. Um, I mean, I could see like an owl in the dark. Uh, I could hear a dog whistle, you know, the silent dog whistles. I mean, my hearing was that good until um, the first Sog mission, and that went away. <laughs> but um, you know, just in smelling, and I and a lot of the chemistry came came into play, and uh, you know, being able to understand the chemicals involved. You know what 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 am I smelling? Kind of smells like sweat, but it's a little different. Mm, that's right. You have two kinds of sweat the normal sweat from the heat and everything, then you have the fear sweat. Mm -hmm. It smells different. And if you're laying there in an ambush, waiting on me to walk into it, uh, and it's it's warm anyway, and and you're scared of what's going to happen when I come in there, your sweat becomes much stronger, smells different, and I knew what that smelled like. So if there was any breeze, any air movement coming toward me, from where you were, you know, I could I could pick up on that, and then we could maneuver, do whatever we wanted to, to get around it. I had learned how to smell snakes, you know, when I was a kid running around the woods. Snakes, kind of like people, they get scared if you get close to them, and they emit kind of a musty odor if you're close. Really? Yeah. yeah, now, yeah a rattle that's rattlesnake, you know, a rattlesnake, a rattle, you know, so you you don't have to smell him. Uh, You can hear him rattling, but, you know, some of the others, you know, the water moccasin, you know, cottonmouth, and those guys don't make a whole lot of noise, but they still emit an odor. Uh, So being able to sniff them. And then, you know, where we were in Southeast Asia, you had like 40 different venomous species of snakes out where you were crawling around and trying to sneak around. Uh, and you, we were so far away from everything. If one bit you, there was no way to get you back to a ho- hospital for treatment uh, before, you know, you would die because it was just too far away. Um, now, you know, the special ops today, I mean, they and they carry anti-venom and some different stuff with them. We had a medical kit uh, that, that we carried, but it didn't have, you know, anti-venom stuff in it. Let me ask you
2: this. Oh, go ahead.
1: You no, know, I, uh, I didn't want to get carried away. I, I want to hear Sean talk. <laughs> because, well, it's, it's, it's interesting,
0: if I may, because uh, what you're describing is kind of uh, almost directly how I learned how to do things in the bush. But it was tracking uh, rabbits and squirrels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I was I considered myself as a hunting dog. I had an excellent hearing and excellent nose. I had an excellent eye. And um, and you you know as well as I do, if you do it long enough, eventually the problems just disappear and the solutions appear. And so I could move really quick through the bush and not have to track. I I just arrived where I needed to, or I got to where I had to, or I saw the thing that was required and it's not magic it's a lot of body of work of a lot of intentional tracking that then makes the tracking disappear and just become almost magical. And so I learned that as a young kid myself. And, and to your point, uh, whether you smell a guy's fresh soap from the shower a couple of days ago, or whatever the case is, once you're attuned to nature and uh, once you've spent several days, uh, uh, kind of establishing that uh, equilibrium of you—you you now smell like nature. You are nature. It's so easy to identify someone who is out of the uh, the equilibrium, as it were, of nature.
1: Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and we, you know, I got to as I as I learned across time, I got to the point where there was no soap for the last three days before a mission couldn't wash your your clothes with soap you couldn't you couldn't wash with soap um you know I had primarily indigenous people with me um and their diets were a little different you know, than the Americans um but I would say we we've got to cut the spices out uh, so that was the first thing I, I started doing with them is no spices those last three days uh, because I don't want them to smell you because the north vietnamese and south and uh, the mountain yards and and people you know in in south vietnam the spices were a little different um eventually i went to we're going to eat the spices they the north vietnamese eat if you have to poop i want your poop to smell like north vietnamese poop mm-hmm. so oh, wow. you know, and things like that i i I don't want them to smell a different spice on you than than what they're used to smelling. Just like you know, Sean was saying. So we worked on being invisible, and invisibility has a lot of different components to it. You know, it, it's it's the sound, it's the sight, it's the movement, and we worked on this is the way you move. Uh, you know, when Sean tracking a deer, a deer hunters when when they see a big buck coming, one of the things they notice is um, it's more difficult to see him coming directly at you if he walks directly at you if he's moving horizontally you can see him easier but the other thing the bucks do quite often is they look around their bodies coming straight but they turn their head and, and they yeah. start to look now you've got this mass that's moving horizontally to you makes it easier to see. So I started training, uh, particularly with the point men. None of this turning with your weapon and and turning and looking. You look straight ahead, move your eyes right and left, keep the weapon pointed straight. You can get there in time. But if you start turning your head and moving like that, their guy is going to see you. And he's going to take you out right away um, so be invisible and we had a little sign just be invisible to put it top of mind on a reg- regular basis while we're we're out there this is how you move this is how you don't make noise when you put your foot down this is how you get back up without making noise nothing on you can shine have any reflection can make a sound so we would jump up and down, do all this kind of stuff before we'd get on the aircraft to make sure nothing rattles, nothing's moving, everything's secured, um, you know, and become invisible.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's that's really important. Uh, you know, why yes. it's important to me is <clears throat> because when I was a young kid, I'd said this uh, when I had the privilege to talk with John Striker Mar, uh, courtesy of uh, Doxy. And uh, I'd said that when I was a young guy, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, before I joined the military at 18, I was reading everything I could about Mac v. Sog, anything, because to me, they were what I wanted to be, uh, the stories that were told. And and you may have written some of these stories that I was reading. I'm just turning 60 this year. So you may have written some of the stuff that I was reading as a 15-year-old boy or a 17-year-old boy. Anything that I could get my hands on in respect to Mac v. Sog just felt right to me. So I had read all of the things about uh, with Montagnard and with uh, eating, the, eating uh, locally or eating like the locals in mm-hmm. order to become a local, in order to be able to ghost your way through the jungle or ghost your way through the environment. These were all really formative lessons for me well before I could spell the army. And so I really, really, really appreciated the information that was being passed on. As I saw it, it was like professional tips, pro tips on how to do things properly. And some of the minor considerations such as how to move through the uh, through a terrain silently by first testing, by jumping up and down to see if you're a ghost or not. These are all little things that I carried through into my military career, becoming a sniper and then a special operations sniper, et cetera. All of those lessons I learned before I joined the Army through books written by legends. So I don't know if you had any of that writing out there at the time, but someone was putting out stuff into my brain that then I felt was so important. I incorporated it into the rest of my life.
1: Yeah, that's great.
2: I ask you this, Dick. I'm going I look at your last chapter two and three you have lessons learned, so I'm gonna tie this in. You remember the story you told me if I have it right, my memory is you know, about memory. Um, you told us a story, I share the story every semester with my classes because it's such an amazing story and the testament to you, really. The one where you were very first deployed, if I remember correctly, you were doing the helicopter. Kind of thing, and you're getting ready to jump off. I think you said you're like six feet from the ground, and then all of a sudden, boop, everybody surprised you. Um, uh, not giving you a basket of flowers or anything, but all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. You remember that story?
1: Yeah, can you, can you that one's of, hard to know? that That's when I lost my ability to hear a dog whistle. No more, yeah. I imagine I'm that that dog one. whistles after that.
2: <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that, and then I'll bring you back to chapter two. Chapter two talks about being a warrior. And then chapter three, you also make, you have one of my favorite lines in the book, which I'll read after you tell the story. But I think all that ties in together. And it's a great, start started getting a great direction into mindset as well. But would you mind sharing that story a little bit again with us? It was your first deployment, yeah, I think it was. it was.
1: It was my first SOG mission. Uh, we were going out. They had, they had dropped a a large bomb on a ridge line, blew a, a hole in the jungle canopy so we could sit down in it with the with the helicopter, it was we were going going to do just an almost last light insertion. Um, we were on our short final. We were coming in really slowly. Um, the skids on the, on the Huey were just kind of dragging across the, the top of the uh, trees on, on the jungle and going really slow. I had just, you know, we got out on the skids so that we could get off fast. You know, we're carrying about eighty or so pounds of gear a, a piece. Um, I saw some hooches over on on my left, and I thought that wasn't in the briefing. They didn't tell us anything about that brief, that little village being there. Something you know is not right. And you know, mm-hmm. when I'm my first time in combat, and I'm uh, you know I'm kind of pumped up for this, but I'm thinking we're going so slowly. Uh, An NVA could take a rock and knock me off the skid with it if he wanted to. Um, I'm I'm not comfortable <laughs> coming in that slow. To but but we had to to get lined up to go in that that little hole, and we start down in there. And I'm you know I'm scanning around looking uh, to see if I could see anybody. Uh, the helicopter stopped about six feet. Uh, above the ground so now i'm thinking i got on 80 pounds or so of gear i've got to jump six feet down there before i'm going to hit the ground um i just have to suck it up and do it i'm probably going to break both legs when i hit the ground and i just i bent my knees to to jump and when i bent my knees this guy nva pops up over on the right on ak-47 i saw him out of the corner of my eye he you know, he's pointed right at me. So instead of jumping into the bomb crater, I pushed back up and onto the, you know, the edge of the helicopter onto the floor. Where he fired just as I was doing that. So the stream of bullets came across where my legs had been a half a second before and hit the guy next to me and took his legs out. So uh, I just I had so much adrenaline going, I put a half a magazine into that guy. I, I caught the back of the harness of, of the one that got hit, and the whole jungle all around us just opened up, and they were sitting there waiting on us in an ambush. Um, so all this stuff is coming. I, I got the other guy back up on the floor the helicopter. Blood's going everywhere where everybody's shooting now, the door gunners. I have two guys behind me, and they've got their CAR-15 muzzles, one on each side of my head, so I could feel my hearing just going away. You know, fill the, you know, the powder burns and stuff from the muzzle flashes. And we're all shooting. The two Cobras that were coming in opened up, you know, with the minigun. So all of that's coming in. You got 30 or so NVA firing back, you know, with their AK-47s on automatic. Their bullets are going everywhere. You can hear the clanging every time one hit the helicopter. Um, so... I I still had a half a magazine left. I'm sitting there with just nothing but air, except we wasn't playing basketball, but nothing but air between me and them and thinking, you know, this is not good. Um, So I hosed a guy down that was in a tree straight across from me. He fell out. But now I'm, you know, my magazine's empty. So I discovered at this point, as your stress level gets to a certain range you begin to start losing your fine motor coordination so when i tried to pull the magazine out of the canteen pouch that i had six of them jammed in um and i had blood uh, it was covered with blood so my hand was really slick i couldn't get a hold of the magazine you know firmly enough to get it out of the pouch and all the stuff is still come coming at me and I'm, I'm kind of laying back like I thought that was going to keep me from getting hit. But anyway, I eventually got the magazine out and then couldn't get it in the magazine well. Because, you know, Watch fine motor coordination has gone and, and my hands are a little shaky and I'm trying to get it in there. Um, finally got it in and, you know, continued to shoot some people and, and stuff. And so I I learned a lot, you know, during that um short period of time and then <clears throat> uh we hit with a big shock wave coming across uh because uh, we discovered those hooches were actually tanks with the thatched material put around them to make them look like a hooch but when the hooches wow. skated, when they started driving when they started driving and coming toward us um then it was wow they, those things have tracks on uh, so the the A1Es that we had, um, they started coming in and bombing the tank for 250 pounders just a little ways from us. And the concussion, you know, from those things that coming around and hitting the helicopter about to knock us into the trees. But eventually we got out. And once we got out of there and we started to fly off, I looked over. I was the assistant team leader at that point. I looked over at the team leader, you know, and he looked back at me with a big Big smile on his face, and he's giving me a thumbs up. Like, man, this is so great! <laughs> I'm thinking, what is wrong with him? Wow, and we all we almost died. He thinks this is the coolest thing going. <laughs> so anyway, we get back, and um, and I ask him, I said, "Why? Why we were down in the crater? How many magazines did you empty?" And he said, I, "I emptied five. I was starting on number six. I threw two frag grenades, and then a smoke grenade as we were leaving." And I'm thinking, hmm, I got like three or four magazines at the most, and he said, "Let me tell you something, Lieutenant. If you don't learn to change magazines faster when people are shooting at you, you're going to die." And I said, oh, "Roger that." You know, uh, I thought it was fast, but apparently, I'm not. I got to get a lot faster before we do this again. So, a lot of practice went on. <clears throat>
2: It's a crazy story and sean you were only 21 right yeah that's insane to me at that age going through all this stuff i mean it sounds like a apocalypse now sounds like it's a calm restful movie <laughs> compared to your story that you went through it's insane
1: well i think you know sean will kind of agree with this when when you watch apocalypse now you watch police movies you watch you know action movies there's two or three guys out there shooting at you maybe and you know the hero's running around with a nine millimeter and he's hosing down people that are using ak-47s and <laughs> shoot back at him um when there's thirty eight, thirty 30 guys with ak-47s shooting back at you all at the same time on automatic and you're their target and and you realize in the movies, we always take turns. You know, Sean shoots at me, and then he ducks down, and I shoot back at him, and then I duck. It's coming, you know, from continuously at you. There's somebody shooting at you all the time, uh, and it it makes it it makes it difficult to hit your target for one thing, particularly um, when you're new, like I was. Because one of the other things I I also learned. When the stress level gets that high, uh, not only is your fine motor coordination you know, going away, but so is your vision. In your in your training, you go out to the range, you have a silhouette, you shoot at it, and you do you know, you, you practice hitting it. And I never had a silhouette shoot back at me. I never knew what it was like to have that thing start shooting back. I never had a deer shoot back at me. Uh, but all of a sudden, that's happening, and it's running your stress up. And you, you've trained on how to get the correct sight picture and sight alignment, and you know how to line all that stuff up. And it until you get in that situation, and now you can't even see the stupid sight. Your vision is long, well, you're short, and near vision is is blurry, and you can't focus, so you you can't get that good sight picture because of the stress level of where you are. And it starts to throw everything off. And nobody told you that. You know, just get this good sight picture here on the range and make sure you do that when you get ready to shoot somebody. It's kind of like, you know, again, Sean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, when you go go deer hunting to shoot your first deer. And you miss this perfect shot. Your stress level jumps up, you know, and and you just, you miss it. And you miss people. I mean, they're close to you, and you can miss them.
0: Yeah, and I so- think that's a, that's a really common misunderstanding out there is uh, the ability to take a sterile environment, like a shooting range or, or a really uh, controlled space uh, where someone can perform reasonably well on their first or second or third or hundredth attempt uh, in that controlled environment. But the time that uh, chaos is inserted into a controlled space, it's the chaos that starts collapsing that vision into a tunnel vision. It's that chaos that creates the difficulty to follow orders because now you can't hear the orders, whether you've got hearing protection on or not. Things tend to start collapsing under high stress. And the only way to uh, mitigate that is to train under stress. So not training in a sterile environment. And it took quite some time for a lot of organizations to realize that there's a massive difference between teaching someone how to shoot and then teaching someone how to perform under stress or under chaos. Two wildly different things.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that we do in some of our classes is I take the, the little cardboard tube out of a roll of, of toilet paper. And and we just pass those around and we say, all right, put that thing up to your eyes, you know, and you know, close one eye and just look look through the that little tube. That's all you can see now. And all of a sudden it just shrinks everything down to this little small tunnel that you're looking through. And you and Sean are standing next to each other. I can see him, I can't see you. Mm-hmm. And and you know, we have people you know, law enforcement, they they shoot people sometimes that they don't intend to, because they don't see them. It no. shrinks down, and and I I I think I'm shooting at Sean, but but you know, I am wobbly now because of all the stress. I don't see you, but I hit you, and it just you know, you, you've got to do the training. You've got to do it under stress. And we did a thing um, before I went to. Uh, Vietnam and Special Forces, we did a thing called quick kill. Uh, we went out to the range and we were issued BB guns. And then the the instructor had an aluminum disc, you know, about that big around. And he said, what we're going to do is we're going to throw these discs up in the air and then you're going to shoot from the hip with the BB gun and try to hit them. And once you can hit that disc, we're going to the next smaller and the next smaller and the next smaller. And you're going to do it without aiming. It's point shooting. Figure out how to point shoot. And then we went to, down to two by fours that had little tiny silhouettes on, lined up across them. So we would just point shoot at those little silhouettes and get so you could hit all of those. Then we went in into the woods, into the range where you had pop-up targets some good guys some bad guys and you had your m16 and you would point shoot at those targets hopefully you didn't shoot the good guys you know you had to make a, a quick decision on is is this a bad guy or or not before you shot it but um did a lot of work like that and i shot most of the time where we were because we were so close to them when we would see them um i did the point shooting almost like exception unless the guy was on out there a ways i never brought it up takes too long to come up if i can hit you from right here you know with a three round burst you know i'm good you know when i get up to you i can put three more in there if i want to but you know i i need to make contact with you with the bullets very quickly
0: Yeah, you you said a couple of things there that are interesting to me using the toilet uh, paper tube analogy or the example. And uh, you said that you'll you'll ask a student or someone to hold the tube up to their eye and look through it. And of course, that gives you a very tunnel vision. You can only Mm -hmm. see what's directly in front of you. That's a great uh, drill. But uh, an additional aspect to that drill is if you're holding it up to your eye, you can see quite a lot. But now you hold that thing at full arm's distance and try to look through that same tiny little hole. Well, now the world just got a whole lot tighter for that individual. So moving yeah. it back and forth, that too, gives uh, someone a, a good sense of how rapidly things can collapse under stress. The The tunnel becomes even tighter, and you see even less of the target out there. And now you're having to engage your your head even more, to, or your eyes even more, to, to really scan the peripheral. And most of it is peripheral now versus the actual uh, focalized target. So that's a really interesting drill that uh, I think a lot of people would benefit from. The other thing that you said on point shooting is in order to get, uh, in order to move higher up the uh, trajectory of Uh, excellence, we'll call it, as when you enter into special operations nowadays, or when I was in it, we did so Mm -hmm. much shooting that the, I'm I'm a point shooter as well, but I point shoot with my eyes. And so wherever I look, I just Mm -hmm. think bang, 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 and three holes appear exactly where I was looking. The weapon effectively disappears in my hand. So even if I had tunnel vision, which I don't, Mm -hmm. Uh, I wouldn't have to rely on my iron sights at all or any lasers or any anything at all. I became so accustomed to or I became so good with a weapon that I only had to look and think whole and the whole would appear. And it was as if I had nothing in my hands, as it were.
2: That's yeah. Let me uh, remind everybody who we're talking to <laughs> Dick Thompson, founder... The president and CEO of High Performance Systems. You can find out more about that because we're going to be switching over to that in a little bit at HPSYS.com, HPSYS.com. Also, you can find Sean Taylor at Sean Taylor's one over on Instagram or The Collective at 11 a.m. Pacific time on YouTube. The book for, Di- for uh, Dick Thompson is SOG, codenamed Dynamite. Mac V SOG Personal Journal. Definitely recommend that. The reason I brought this in, if you gentlemen are OK with it, um, you can indulge me here a little bit. is start switching from the battlefield. This is one of my favorite lines that you put in the book. and Maybe I should have said it earlier, but you said, I boarded a plane in a world I had known all my life and got off the plane in a strange, dangerous, wild, wild west world on steroids with a very different set of rules. It was like entering another dimension. But then you mentioned this part all my senses were confused. Nothing made sense. My circadian rhythm was 12 hours off and death was in the air. We continue on in that chapter. But I guess what I wanted to learn learn from you is let's go back to that incident in the helicopter or the special training. What did you learn from that that you applied to your life in general?
1: keep shooting <laughs> that's uh, that's one <laughs> of the things that's that you'll see in fact i i got uh i got in a little trouble when we came back for the debriefing and they started asking me you know what kind of trees were around the lz how tall were they have and i just i, I don't know did, well, why, did, why not you were right i said i was busy shooting you know i i was shooting at the bad guys now, I didn't stop and take notes about what the trees looked like, what the soil was, and and these kinds of questions that you ask me now. I was shooting people, and and I was busy doing that. So, uh, in, the, in you know, in the book, it's focused on engaging the bad guys and maintaining fire superiority, going after them. Um, but when you take that, and in book two, I take those kinds of things out and say. How do you apply this in real life? You keep moving forward. You have a plan. You have an objective. You know what you're trying to do, whether it's, you know, work on your educations, work on, on your profession, whatever. You keep going. You, you keep shooting, but you keep learning more. Like, you know, Sean was talking about uh, in the beginning where he was reading all, all the books about techniques and different things. That's what he was doing. That's continuing to shoot, continuing to move forward. Uh, engage in the enemy. Uh, and one of, one of the things that, you know, after that first mission, and I finally got to, to get out on the ground, um, I found if we were not moving, we were dying. When we're not moving, they are moving. And what they're trying to do is circle us and cut us off uh, and, and get us so that we can't move. And, and then we're in trouble. If you get trapped in a building, you get trapped in a bunker, you get trapped somewhere where you can't move, uh, so many options go away um, that you're probably going to die, at least with a SOG, because you're engaging so many of them. And, you know, I started looking at things more like it's, you know, if, if we're going to fight three or four guys hand to hand at one time, I don't want them to come at me from all directions. I want to try to, to the degree I can, maneuver so I can keep them in some sort of a line, so they can't all get to me at one time. Um, so I'm trying to do that, you know, with the bad guys if they're as they're coming at me. Uh, I don't want them to break off and circle me, and then I can't do anything, because they they have the total advantage once they do that. So I'm I'm moving. So I want to know. And in my mind, I visualize you know, three dimensionally uh, the battlefield, the terrain I'm on. We, we were in the mountains uh, most of the time where I was. So there's always ridge lines. There's little valleys. Um, so I'm I'm seeing which way can they go? I mean, there's the terrain's not going to support them doing certain things. So how can I move with the terrain that I, I have available to me to use, so that I keep them in a bad position? I keep them so they can't continue to be moving around me. Um, so using those things to the degree that you can um, is, you know, I, I didn't I didn't think about it. You well, know, we just we just shoot at them and we sit here and we fight it out until somebody might be able to come help us. Uh, how how can I keep them off balance? And because it's gonna be an hour or more, uh, sometimes maybe a couple hours, three hours, depending on the weather, before anybody's gonna show up. And in the interim, it's you and five or six other guys against, you know, two hundred, three hundred. So you you gotta you know, keep moving.
0: I agree. That's that's how I've tried to live my life as well, precisely, is Um, not be on the defensive, be on the offensive, not be static, be mobile. Take the advantage, take the initiative by uh, movement-based tactics and strategies. In fact, I feel that forward uh, trajectory is so (laughs) important or or the pursuit, pursuing them, hunting them rather than being pursued and being hunted. I feel it's so important to adopt that, uh, we'll call it default aggressive mindset, Uh, that, uh, I just, I just finished my, my last career. I've stepped into podcasting recently, but my last career, uh, just a little while ago was, uh, 15 years of high performance race coaching athletes all around the world. And I named my company very specifically this forward momentum coaching. I've, in fact, uh, I've got a t-shirt I was wearing yesterday that says forward momentum coaching on it. It is so important in my mind. And I know it's so important for people who are high performers that I named it for momentum. It's critical to really uh gain everything that you
1: can in life. Just simply pursue. Yeah, in, and and then the book it talks about one time we I won't go into detail, but when, one time we found um a NVA training site where they had cleared out little areas underneath the triple canopy. And and like little classrooms, and we were able to crawl up and listen to the training that they were doing. And it was anti-SOG training. And, you know, one class was, uh, this is what the SOG team is going to do when when you find them, when you go after them. Here's what they'll do. And they were saying, they will run. They'll fire at you, and then they're going to run. And when they start running, now you are really on the offense and you go after them. You'll see, I don't want to give book two away too much, but when, I, when you get over there, you'll see where I, I've changed and said, <laughs> you know, depending, depending on what I hear when, when the, the engagement first starts, if I think it's a small enough group, we're going to assault into them. We're going to go get them. And it's it going to scare them to death. You know when we come after them and then in you know, middle of 69 we got 30 round magazines i mean the nba's had you know they had 30 round in their ak's we had 20 and in, in a, a car 15 so we eventually started getting some of the 30 round that gave us an extra 10 rounds in that initial contact and then i started loading those up with tracers and just that initial rods that was coming at them with with all that extra ammunition plus tracers. You know, it, you can see the tracers hit things and bounce around. I mean, you can hear the regular bullets coming by. You'll hear it hit something, hit a tree, hit a rock. But if it's a tracer round, you'll see some of the 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 fire, the phosphorus, as it's bouncing around, and it just intensifies what's going on around you in terms of the, the visual effect, and that scares you. And one of the things that I made a big discovery was that, you know, the bad guys are human too. We don't always want to admit that, but they are. They don't want to die. And if if you act like you're going to kill them and you demonstrate that you have that capability, um, they'll change what they do around you. They'll react to you differently. And, you know, realizing that they're human um if I, I told my guys after a mission my time when we were doing post mission training, I said, here's what I want you to think about. When we first make contact, if you see uh you know an NVA start firing and go down behind a tree, guarantee you when he decides to return fire, he will come around the right side of the tree. You'll see the the muzzle of that AK-47 poke out around the right side, his right side, from his perspective. The muzzle would come around, and his head will come right behind it. So when you see him go behind a tree, from your perspective, you look at the left side of the tree, and you go ahead and get ready. And when you see that muzzle come, you get ready to pull the trigger, because his head's coming right behind it. And they're going to go there almost every time. Why? they're right-handed if you're right-handed mentally it, it drives you to the right side or whatever cover now you know with with John you get a tier one guy these days he's been trained not to do that he's been trained to fire from any direction uh, and, and move hit and move and shoot and things like but back in those days you know, they were, they were just doing the instinctual thing and that's go to the right because 90% of them are are going to be right-handed. Yeah, you're right, but uh that's here's crazy. the really important
0: part out of that is uh the lessons that were learned back then by you, those observations mm-hmm. that you were drilling into your team. That's what that's the foundation of special operations. That's what that's what allows tier 1 to be good because those lessons that those observations that you started imparting in your men are the lessons that were imparted into me. And so, I mean, I don't have to say too much about uh, standing on the shoulders of giants, but I mean, you in effect created a lot of solutions that uh, I started incorporating as a young man myself. So thank you for that.
1: And, you know, Tier one guys now. Not only do you you practice that, but you do a lot of a lot of practice, a lot of training, shooting left handed, Mm -hmm. or with your opposite hand. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody taught us to do that, so I started making my guys. In between missions, we'd go to the range. I said, "You got to shoot left handed. You've got to learn to to shoot with your left hand and and load with your other hand. You're so used to loading." reload putting another magazine with your left hand and when you go to shoot left-handed now you got to put the magazine in with the other hand and you got to practice you you can't learn how to do that you know when when you you got all of that automatic fire coming at you got to already be there it might be because you want to shoot around the other side of the the cover that you have or it might be that you just had your right hand blown off You can't shoot right-handed. You don't have any fingers left. You don't have a hand or you're hitting the shoulder. And you have to shoot with the other hand. And we have to learn to do that before we get into contact. So we would practice on the range shooting. They thought I was crazy at first. And then they thought, "Yeah, this makes sense. I I can shoot that way if I have to.
0: Well, that's amazing. And so I need to ask you this specifically. And I mean, I need to uh, ask it. Is uh, what was it about you that was was there something unique about how you were raised? or was there something unique about your, uh, you said the uh, chemical uh, education before you got into the military that had you thinking outside of the box? because most tier one guys are accused of uh, being out of the box thinkers. And as I listen to you, you're very much an out of the box thinker. And so you were looking at uh, novel approaches or unique ways to uh, improve your team or improve yourself or put the odds in your favor. That's not common. And uh, if it was common, then there wouldn't be things called special operations. It would be called everyone's doing special (laughs) stuff. And so uh, what was it about you that was unique? Or was there something that put you into that sort of uh, position where you were thinking outside of the box?
1: I I think as I've thought back about it across time, I had kind of a scientific, you know, mindset. Uh, I'm going to observe. I'm going to see what's going on, and then I'm going to figure out why it's happening and then how to counter it. You know, if it's in combat, so I'm always looking for new ways of doing things. And then just because this is the rule. The way you're supposed to do something, you know, if it's not working for me, I'm gonna I'm gonna change it. I'm gonna do something different. I'm gonna find what works, particularly if somebody's trying to shoot me. Um, I need to find a way to keep them from doing that and, and train my team. And and part of the mindset is every time I do something, I wanna do it better than I did it last time. So, so every mission, and you know, see in, in the book there, every every mission when we came back in, we did an after action. We did the debriefing with the intel guys, but then we did our own after action review. You know, starting from the time we got on the aircraft uh, till we got back, what did we do? What did we see? What did we learn? What worked well? What didn't work so well? So, and then from there we would go post mission training and you know in the beginning it was things like you guys don't throw hand grenades very well from the prone we've got to practice that you got you throw a hand grenade you got to get that thing far enough away from us that you know that we're not going to be the casualties you got to make sure you're not hitting trees and and it's bouncing back at us Um, and you got to develop the strength to throw it from the ground Um, because if you raise up you know they're going to take you out so just things like that. What do we need to get better on? And then you also had the resistance of, you know, the indigent guys. There's some things they just didn't want to do. I mean, when when I told them, uh, we we're going to start an exercise program, you know, because they're they're carrying the 80 pounds too. Because one of the things I did, um, most teams, individuals carried five frag grenades. When my teams would carry 10. So if I had a seven-man team, we had 70 frag grenades with us. Most teams, almost everybody would carry one claymore for a person. I went to three. So it upped the weight, but it gave us so much more, you know, firepower, sustainability. You want to come after us, particularly at night, I'm going to light your fire. You're not going to know where we're coming from. I started daisy chaining the claymores and you know you if you put if you put seven claymores out on a you know a avenue of, of advancement uh, that they could come on and you set seven claymores all simultaneously and all of a sudden that's ten and a half pounds of c4 the blast and concussion from that is unreal and then you put forty nine hundred steel balls traveling at four thousand feet a second in that blast. I mean, you shred everything that's around it, and that makes people start to think about, you know, this this team leader's this guy's crazy. So finally, you decide you're going to come on down to get us, and then and there's another three setting there, Daisy Chain together. And then you got frag grenades coming at you. And you say, let's back off for a minute and think about what we're doing here. This guy's crazy. That's not what SOG teams normally do. And then as we would withdraw, we had to withdraw. We're leaving claymores behind on time fuses. So out of the middle of nowhere, you you know, claymore goes off and people start talking about, I don't know that I want to get too close to that team.
0: Yeah, it's not worth the the juice is not worth the squeeze based uh-huh. on the psychological yeah. warfare impact that
1: you're uh, putting in place yeah this guy's a nutcase and you know and I was you know because I I would do things different I would try things differently put put the white phosphorus grenades put some of those in front of the claymores and not only do you have the blast and and the the steel balls coming out there now you're blowing white phosphorus at them And those chunks are going all over the place, plus the dense white smoke that they can't breathe. I mean, technically, that dense white smoke is really a a chemical agent. It meets all the requirements of a chemical Mm -hmm. agent. It'll just burn your lungs up if you inhale it. So, I mean, it's all kinds of things like that that you can make it. So people, they don't want to come down and, and have a chat with you.
0: Yeah, I I I love that. So now the tricky part as I listen to that for me is I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and and you know it's hard to say how I would have dealt with the situation, but I feel like you're a, a duplicate person of myself. I I I feel like this is exactly what I would have been doing in your shoes. But I also recognize that. Not everyone thinks that way, and not everyone likes it done that way. And so, at what point did you start getting pushback from uh, either senior command or from someone who's in an air-conditioned cubicle telling you how it's supposed to be done?
1: Yeah, and you'll see some of that in the book. They tried to—they told me they—they were, they were going to resupply us, and we were going to stay longer than we were supposed to stay out there. And I—I I don't want to know. I'm not going to tell you where I am. You know, I've got, these guys are all around us. I don't want to resupply. And the message came back, you know, saying, well, the the launch commander says you are going to be resupplied. And it's about five minutes out. And I said, I'm I'm not going to tell you where I am. So then the message came back and said, well, they're going to drop it at your last known location. I said, (laughs) that's not where we are, but the bad guys are going to hear where that helicopter drops stuff, and they're going to come right across us trying to get there. You've just compromised their whole position. And, you know, I wasn't happy then. I wasn't happy when we got back in and did the debriefing. They were not happy that I wouldn't tell them where I was. But you can't mark your position when you're surrounded with, with that many people. Holy cow. So, yeah, I got in trouble from time to time because you know i i had a different view of, of the battlefield and what was going on and i disagreed with what you know people above wanted to do sometimes
0: but obviously you were effective and so obviously they let you continue to be effective and i guess it was just a matter of negotiating how much trouble you were in
1: <laughs> yeah part of it part of it was you know i had i had good company commanders Mm-hmm. it would they would come to my defense and, and and on one i think it's in the book there you know it, my company commander said all right we're going to go into the debriefing do not hit anyone do not <laughs> shoot anyone remember <laughs> you're talking to a major and he significantly outranks you i'll take care of it you know you just stay calm and try to answer the questions. Saying, yes, sir. So I, I had some, you know, really good people like that that would kind of step into my defense sometimes. Uh, but you know, I, I usually, you know, accomplished the mission. Uh, I took out a lot of bad guys after the primary mission was over, and you know, later that became uh, while I was in Sog, that became like. I I put that into my mission every time I went out. Do the wiretap, whatever it is. Then crush as many NVA's you can on the way out. You know, Find out where they are, know where they are, get you all the air support that you need, and just crush those jokers as you're leaving. You know, make them pay the price. Um,
2: Let me ask you this, Dick, if I can... I mean, actually, kind of directed to both of you, but I'll ask you first. Sean was was a, I hate to say was I anything, mean, but was a world champion. Uh, what do we call it? High mm, performance 20, cyclist.
0: 24, 24 hour solo mountain bike racer. So race for twenty-four hours.
2: So incredible accomplishment there. But when I hear you speak, when both of you speak, I hear this this mindset that's not very common. Obviously, as Sean highlighted as well the cognitive flexibility, the ability to think outside the box, look at different alternatives, to reframe situations. How do you, because I know you, you train a lot of people in business. I can see it applied really well in sports as well. And even in your book, you mentioned your body quits if your mind lets it. I think it was your line in the book. Um, how do you translate that to the business world, to whoever it is that you're encountering that you want to work with? Because it sounds kind of like what Sean was alluding to. It's an incredible, valuable skill
1: yeah it's showing how to motivate people um being very clear on the objectives and then motivating them training them helping them know how to re- you know be successful at what they're doing i mean i'm an ironman coach you know so i've got people out you know that i'm training to do ironman um and you know that's a long day you mm-hmm. know 140.6 miles of swimming biking running um so it, and and they have to have that same mindset because you're when, when that cannon goes off you don't stop until you get to the finish line 140.6 miles away and that's when you get to take a break so all the nutrition all the the uh, liquids that you're taking in the equipment that you're using the sw- you know you start to swim with 2,000 of your closest friends all trying to drown you for 2.4 miles and. Anyway, it's but it's similar, you know, to to what Yashan is talking about. It's that mindset. I need to teach you the mindset. Some people are just not going to get it, um, and others you have to kind of get them to back off a little bit and focus because you can you can outrun yourself. It's like running a marathon. You can't sprint, you know, the first ten miles. Uh, and think, man, I feel pretty good because you're not going to make the last ten miles because you've already burned yourself out. Um, and so you have to learn about pacing. It's the same in, in combat or sports. Uh, and, and if you got somebody like Sean coaching you, then he understands that and he understands how how to teach you to be able to do that and manage manage yourself, manage what you're doing, manage your energy, manage your you know your intake of, of liquids or whatever. Um, so reading people is important. Yeah,
2: reading people is important too.
1: <clears throat> yeah, and you know one of the one of the issues with the indig was if you didn't work with them, they'd shoot all their ammunition up too fast. And when you get when you got in contact out there, a whole bunch of people were coming after you. You're not going to have any ammo. No resupply of ammunition's coming. I mean, you got it on you. That's why I would carry. So I carried fifty magazines for my Car 15. Wow. <laughs> and it wasn't unusual to only have a few left. You know, when I'd get back, because I tended to shoot a little more than most people, um, but. You know, I, I if I had extra, I could pass them out. You know, distribute them. You know, among the other people. But we all carried a, a lot of ammunition on my teams because, you know, when it started, I wanted us to be able to sustain what we were doing, and you know, be able to to still have some ammunition left at, at the end, hopefully. But you know, when if we had the team being taken out you know, on strings or something where you half the team goes out on the first chopper and then you got to wait for the uh, next chopper to come in to pick up the the rest of the team. The first guys would throw their magazines and stuff to us as they were being pulled out because they didn't need them anymore. We needed them to survive until we could get out. So, you know, redistributing ammunition, things like that, Uh, SOP again you'll see it in the book. I made everybody carry everything uh the same way unless you're left-handed. If you're left-handed, then your frag grenades were on your left side because you're gonna throw left-handed. If you're everybody else would have them on the right side because they're gonna throw them right-handed. Magazines went on the left side because you're gonna load with your left hand. You know, I know I know where your notebook's gonna be, I know where your map's gonna be, I know where. Your medical gear is. I know where everything is. I can find it in the dark if I need it. If I need to take it off your body or you need to take it off of mine, you know where it's going to be. And and we practice. Practice with IVs. That really made me popular um, when I take over a team. It's, okay. We're not going to get out there and be in contact. And I'm laying there bleeding to death. And you've never put an IV in. So we're going to practice that this afternoon. I got some needles from the medics. And, you know, my interpreter, Ben, I'm going to go first. You put the IV in me. We're going to talk about how to do it. And then you're going to poke me. Then I'm going to poke you. And then we're all going to start poking each other with the needles so that we can do that. That wasn't popular, but... You know, if you're under fire, that's not the time to learn how to put that thing in. If you're bleeding out and you need that blood expander, you you need the guy to get it in your vein, not just stick it in your arm.
0: That's Um, amazing. The uh what the the things that you are insisting upon as SOPs, uh having the notebook here, having that there, et cetera, et cetera, in the dark. These are (laughs) all things that uh we would do as well in in the various small units that I was in before I went into tier one. And uh, they they seem like minor things or almost inconsequential things. But how you do one thing is how you do a thousand things. And so if if you're squared away on, on the small scale stuff, you're squared away on the big scale stuff. And so for guys like you who set the stage right, for guys like me, again, I can't thank you enough.
2: It's crazy stuff. You yeah. know, um, Well, we're heading towards the end of the interview and I know you work a lot with stress, you've had a lot of podcasts that you've been on that you talked about stress. Actually, it's a good time again to <laughs> remind everybody. Uh, you can find more about Dick Thompson at HPSYS.com. HPSYS.com. The book is talking about a SOG code name dynamite. Mac V SOG's personal journal book. Number one, tell you, it's a great, fabulous read. You can also learn more about Sean Taylor at The Collective at 11 a.m. Pacific time on YouTube. Dick, you talk a lot about stress. You've been interviewed a lot about stress. And you have the ability to talk about it psychologically, physiologically. What are some of the things you would do if you worked with a client in regards to dealing with stress? We all are going to encounter one way or another eventually, loss of jobs, uh, not making money, Whatever. What are some of the things you learned from your SOG days as well? And how do you help people with that?
1: One of the issues is everybody knows stress is out there. They know they're stressed, but they don't want to do anything about it necessarily. Yeah, I yeah I know I'm a little stressed. I know I'm not getting enough sleep. I'm not getting the right nutrition, things like that. I don't have time for that garbage. Um And, you know, getting them to back off a little bit and say, well, let's do some small things. And I've got an assessment called the Arsenal. Um, It's a stress resilience assessment. You answer the questionnaires and it prints out a graph for you, gives you a report, and it tells you um, where you are resistance level uh, with uh, your self-awareness. And, and that might seem a little strange, but awareness, being aware of what's going on. Do I notice if my heart rate increases seven or eight beats a minute all of a sudden? Am I aware of that? Something caused it to go up. What what was it? What's going on? Um, you know, so all kind of awareness things. So we, we have little exercises that, that we, we do with them. Uh, you get a measurement on rest. How much do you sleep? How much... Time off? Do you take how much time? Do you do something besides your job that actually allows you to rest, Uh, exercise, nutrition, your attitude? There are seven different uh, best practices on the arsenal. Um, I mean, if you guys want to take it, I'll send you a link and you go out and take it and send a report to you. See what you think about it. I use it, uh, you know, with with clients so we can help the organization reduce its health costs. They can get the stress down. Uh, the Navy's using it a lot now um, to help reduce. Um, the a, a side benefit of it is it reduces, you know, suicide or suicide attempts. Uh, one thing when you take this, it's not going to ask you every fifth question. Have you thought about killing yourself this week? Like the VA assessments and things do. It never mentions that. But it's getting a good picture of where you are. If you want to be the best you can be, if you want to be, you know, like Chan's talking about, this thing, this is your tool. Take the assessment. See where you are. Uh, if you want to be this mountain biker, you want to be marathoner, whatever you want to be, if you want to be the best you can be, raise your stress resilience in these seven areas. It will significantly raise you up. And this gives you a map of where you are right now. It gives you a list of things. Here's some things to go do to raise it up higher. Uh, and, you know, you can take it again, you know, a few months later to see what kind of improvement you've had. I I use it with, you know, the pe- people that I coach, um, you know, with uh, Ironman kind of stuff. Um, but I use it with the clients, too. I use it with the vets that I um, counsel and and work with. If they're struggling uh, with PTSD or different things, you know, it, it helps us to help them get a grip on it. Anyway, um, if you're interested, just, you know, let me know after this and I'll send you the link and you can go do it. Um, and, you know, Sean, it might be something you want to do with some of the guys you're coaching and just tell them. This is not to see if you're broken. This is to, to help you go to that next level, you know, be better than you are now. And, and you know, as you know, you got to eat right. You got to mm-hmm. get the recovery and the sleep and stuff that you need. Uh, and, and you got to get the right kind of exercise for what you're trying to do. So uh, it's all in there.
0: I I love this. I, I love that you have set up that uh, process for myself as an example. Uh, I do believe that anything that's measurable is accessible and can be approved upon. And so that's why all of the athletes that I worked with, every single one of them had to have a wattage device and had to report to me every day with their uploaded files on, on a bunch of different vectors that were important to me because uh, the doc, doc C had asked a question, Carlos had asked a question about how to, you know, how do you uh, interact with people in respect to coaching? Well, I mean, I had that, and I'm not coaching anyone currently now on high performance racing. I'm coaching people uh, on a minor level in kind of life coaching to some degree, not as a business, just as a favor. And so the the things that were important to me that are equally as important to you, what I had to learn how to do over a period of years, and, and I've had athletes that I've never met Uh, and I've been coaching them for over 10 years kind of thing. They're in Australia or they're in this country or that country. We just never shook hands. But I know them as well as their wives know them. And I know more about them than they know about themselves. And that's through a lengthy period of time of being a good coach and working on someone's mind. Uh, I might know a lot about their body, but it's their mind that I probably know the most about. And that's the thing that an assessment tool like that can act as a proxy to better understand the deeper workings of a athlete's or a performer's mind in order to improve that. So I'd love to take a look at uh, that uh, arsenal that you have and, and run it against myself and get a better sense of it. And maybe uh, at a later date, uh, you and I can uh, have a quiet chat about it and see how maybe I can uh, bring it into Uh, other institutions not me bring it in but uh, introduce the idea to other institutions up here in canada we have the same issue with uh, veterans and suicide and in fact uh, not to put too fine a point on it uh, dick but the one of the reasons that i i gave my high performance race uh coaching business to one of my athletes just said it's now your business i don't want anything for it i know you're going to crush it because i freaking trained you to crush it for the last 10 years go do good. I stepped away from that because some of my friends, veterans, had asked me to do exactly what I'm doing right now, get in front of a microphone, and how they convinced me that I had to do it because it was the last thing that I wanted to do. Uh, It was the last thing I wanted to do was give up my athletes. It's because they showed me the disturbing statistics on veteran suicide and the disturbing statistics on veterans' mental health. And you know how it goes once you see those things, you can't unsee them, and therefore I gave away my company, and I'm now doing what I'm doing and so it's just pure coincidence that you've mentioned the arsenal and maybe has some benefits to reducing suicidal ideation or suicide. Then I'm a big fan of taking a look at
1: that if you would please yes i'll I'll get the I'll get your email and and send you a link and you know test it you, know, you take it yourself. Test it on some of your guys. Go to yeah, some out there. Just you know, we'll pick a number and, and we can get them the link and let them go take it and look at the results. Yeah, I use it? a I use a program called Training Peaks.
0: Yeah, Training Peaks. I I've been uh, I, I was probably one of the earliest adopters of Training Peaks about fifteen years ago. Uh, in fact, <clears> back <throat> at the time when I started using Training Peaks, uh, Hunter Allen and all the gang. I mean, they were. They nobody knew about them. They were basically almost a no-name company at that point. And uh, I bumped into them through tracking the wattage form, the old school wattage form, way before Training Peaks was called Training Peaks. So uh yeah, I'm I'm really familiar with Training Peaks. I like it. Yeah.
1: Everything's just automatically uploaded, the calculations there. Oh yeah. FTP, FTP C- CTL,
0: track CTS, all of this stuff. Yeah. 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 Of course. Yeah. I love it.
2: By the way, folks, we haven't told uh, Dick Thompson this yet. (laughs) We might be throwing him into another podcast in the future. Actually, Sean, I think he'd be a great guest to talk about stress on The Collective. I think you guys would have a great conversation about that or improving performance.
0: I agree. I I agree. Uh, I I think that uh, what I didn't come to realize was Dick is an awesome person that is double awesome because he's into much deeper stuff than i thought he was so fascinating uh conversation for me for sure i'd love to uh extend it uh, in the future
2: i told Thank you you me. can't keep, you can't keep it under two hours with dick you just can't
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: impossible with
1: this guy i, I get sidetracked too much so <laughs> no
2: no you have so many so much knowledge in so many different areas but the surprise i i don't know if it's going to happen yet but i wanted to kind of get your take on it we'll do it here live on the show not to put pressure on you. But I have two friends who are Delta Force guys, um, and I told them one of them met John, John Streichmeyer the other day when we were doing an interview. Sean was with me on that one, so he met, he met Tilt on that one. But um, he met the Delta Force guy, and the Delta Force guy afterwards said, you know what? I really want to talk to him again. And I said, you know what? We're interviewing another buddy of his, another Mac Sog Tuesday, which is you. And uh, he said, why don't we do a show? I have my buddy who's on the unit and I want to talk to them. because I want to compare how they operated and how they thought compared to how we operate and how we think today to see it. Cause I think he left about seven years ago when he retired uh, from Delta and um, he was there, I think for nine or eight, nine or nine, 10 years. But I don't know. Would that be something of interest for you?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: we
2: can try that. It'd be a very yeah. fascinating.
0: Yeah, I, I would love to do it, uh, as I said to Doc, uh, see that I'm interested in doing it because I love the mindset of things. I'm I'm not that interested in how many mag changes occurred, but uh, what I am interested is in things that you uh, indicated yourself, Dick, and that is when you went to do a mag change, the the issue of it being slippery and of it being uh, tunnel visioned and that stress uh, impact and et cetera. So, uh, getting a, a, a room, a virtual room full of incredible performers and, and incredible minds, and then considering it through the vector of either a, a higher intellectual conversation or a conversation that uh, tends to mm-hmm. remain within the um, the more academic aspects of things. That would be a fascinating conversation, I feel.
2: I yeah' sure. <laughs> it's a fascinating conversation my last question for me I don't know if Sean has one maybe he's thinking about as well but for last one for me I don't remember I've, I've interviewed you twice we've talked several times on the phone privately and I don't remember this dynamite thing uh, where did this come from <laughs> where did this dynamite come this quiet mild mannered guy that I'm looking at and talk to all of a sudden I got dynamite coming at me <laughs>
1: when when i was in high school being my chemical self uh one of the things i like to do because the military was still having some influence i used to build rockets so i used to back in the old days you could go to the pharmacy and you could uh, buy a big you know jar of sulfur Uh, you could buy you know potassium nitrates you could get all this stuff to build rocket make rocket fuel with and i knew how to do all that stuff so i made my own rocket fuel built my own rockets and i got kept getting bigger and bigger until i got one that uh it didn't get off the launch pad it exploded on the launch pad it knocked out some windows in our neighbor's house um and so i and i enjoyed kind of blowing things up but i i had to move farther down in the in the woods to do that but so when I got to SOG one of the things right in the beginning was uh, after we got our initial briefing which you had to select a code name so that you know if something happened to you if you were captured or if something happened to you 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 could use that code name and they would know who you were um, and you know like if I, if I got wounded kill whatever uh whoever took over the team could say you know dynamite's down and you know so then everybody you know in sog world knew whoa, well, you know th- this is the guy that's down um and so you you had a code name that you used in special situations um sometimes when i was talking to cubby i was talking to uh the gunships or you know, whatever um I might just drop my normal, whatever the call sign was designated for that mission. I might just go to dynamite. Covey would know who, I know Covey. I know all the Covey guys. They know I'm down there. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm talking talking to Spider in the air. Um, He's talking to dynamite. And, you know, we're going back and forth, you know, where where I want the napalm and, you know, those kinds of things. Um, So you had a code name, you know uh John Streichermeyer is tilt Tilt was his code name uh, so <laughs> you, know, it, you know they all they all have them and uh, so it it was like your secret name you you didn't exist anyway and it, you'll you'll find it um yeah, you'll find book two pretty interesting along What's the When's that way. one coming out um uh, in the fall.
2: Oh, wow, pretty soon. Yeah, I've just, I've
1: got a, i have just i have got aii wrote one book and I was told it's, it's really uh, too long uh, for, you know, the sog books don't tend to be that long. They're more, you know, 250, 300 pages. And you've just written like 600 pages. Uh, <laughs> so if you want to be able to sell it, you you need to chop it down so that you can, you know, sell it for $20 or less to, to be competitive with other books. So just do two. So, but cutting it in half, uh, it gave me a little extra room. I can put some other things in there now, but I have to change, change out some different components of it now because I'm starting another book over again. You don't want to read exactly what you read in the beginning of book one. I need a different preface. And a few little things like that to to make it work but uh so i'm, I'm just cleaning that up and then it'll be ready to go mm-hmm. it, it gets a it gets a little more intense than book one more sean kind of pinned it while go. you know it, you know you as you go along you get a little more wacky um <laughs> A little 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 harder to control.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, that's funny because Doc (laughs) asked a question that I wanted to ask uh, (laughs) right from the get go. And that (laughs) is, why was your call sign dynamite? Because as you were talking earlier in the podcast, you, uh, it doesn't matter what point it was in the podcast that I saw that glint in your eye, but I saw a glint in your eye and I thought, oh, you know, like, I think this is a guy who goes from zero to 60 in a split second if he needs to. So I kind of thought that it might have been a reference to your, not your volatility, but your ability to spike it up really quick. Uh, so that's kind of how I thought you might have got your nickname, but uh uh, yeah. the The rocket story is quite interesting, but I still feel that you probably had a would, reputation
1: yeah you'll you'll see that in in the books i I really did like to blow things up and uh, you'll see some nice explosions in in the books i you know drop a bridge you know that's great blow up trucks on a highway uh, blow up a helicopter whatever I, I like to do that stuff um but going I don't want to give too much away, but going through the airport. Mm-hmm. Um we were we did not get a hero's welcome, you know, when when we came back. <clears throat> but you know, so going through the airport, people would part and get out, you know, because I was in uniform, people would get out of my way. Um, but you'd have some people uh who were really anti war that they would get a little further away and, and yell baby killer or you know, different kinds of derogatory terms um and i would you know I, I would think things like you have no clue how fast i am i was on a track team in a high school i can smoke a hundred yard <laughs> the closing time between where i am and where you are right now is probably less than three seconds
0: yeah, not I enough can, time for them to process it. Yeah,
1: you can't start to move before I'm there, and when I get there, you know it's going to be really ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I can, uh, I can move. So some of that was there, but yeah,
0: yeah, I figured so. Hey, I got another question for you if you don't mind. So uh, I, uh, you're a little older than I am, so I've already said that I turned sixty this year. <laughs> and uh of course you bring more wisdom to the conversation uh, because of that and so my question to you is uh specific i'm going to use myself as the example when i was a a young man doing uh, the things that i did i had zero idea that one day i would be a high performance coach as an example or even podcasting as an example so all along my life, I've done several careers and all of them have been things that I never expected, never wanted, never even anticipated. And, but I find as my life unfolds, I'm doing things that are almost um, uh, right out of the blue. I, so unusual to me that uh, I'm kind of surprised by them, but I, I engage, I, I give it my best So now that you've got a, you know, you're an author, as it were, did you ever see yourself being an author? When you were a young man, did you ever see the things that uh, you have done? Did you ever think that you'd be using something called training (laughs) peaks?
1: You know, writing and academic kind of stuff, yes. But you might find this funny going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. When when I was in high school, I was on the track team. I was a sprinter. A long-distance run for me uh, was like a a 200-meter race. I thought that was a long race. I had no desire to go run a 400 or an 800 or a mile. So I did not have the thought in my mind that someday I might do an Ironman and have to go run a marathon after I've done everything else. So, yeah, so those are some things that kind of came about across time, you know, as I got older. Um, So I I didn't really think about going those distances. I realized, you know, once I got in the military that I was going to have to run, you know, at least a mile every day. And then when I started moving towards special ops and, oh, they're going to run a lot further than a mile. So I've got to reset my my headspace here about how far I'm going to run and how much I'm going to carry when I run. You know, so that started slowly adjusting. But the thought of, of doing the swim and then the bike and then running a the marathon and putting it all together, I hadn't really thought about that. But when I did, I thought, you know, I can do that. Just got to go train to work, yeah. You know?
0: And is that how you've approached uh, your life in the sense of uh, that relentless pursuit of excellence and the idea that you anything is possible if you put your mind to it?
1: Yeah, I just if I'm going to do it, I I want to. Well, you can't see in here, but I, you know, there there are things. I, you know, I was a scuba diver from the time I was about to, you know ninth or tenth grade, and just took that all the way to instructor level and dove all over the world. You know, parachutist, halo, all of that kind of stuff. How many jumps can I make? How high can I jump? How small of a clearing can I get into in the middle of, of the mountains? Um, you know, just whatever. And just, you know, let's let's take it up to that level and, and then look around and find something else exciting to do. So.
0: I love it.
2: I love it. Amazing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's great.
1: You should have be on a Dos Equis
2: commercial. The most interesting man in the world. What do you think? Dude? <laughs> no,
1: not very, not very interesting. But <laughs>
2: by the way, folks, I didn't even realize this, but uh, Henry Thompson or Doctor Henry Thompson, Lieutenant, whatever you want, the Communication Wheel is one of the books you first wrote about twenty years ago. One book I never even knew you wrote: Young's Function Attitudes Explained. That's really cool introduction to the communication wheel, um, the handbook for developing social and emotional, emotional intelligence about 14 years ago. And about a decade ago, the stress effect why smart leaders make dumb decisions and what to do about it. And then of course, now we're heading over to his newest book, saw a code named dynamite. Mm-hmm. Anything else for him, Sean?
0: No, just, uh, that was an amazing, uh, conversation. And I learned so much and it, at the start, I thought it was a privilege to talk, uh, uh, with this panel today, but at the end of it, I'm still processing how how much of a privilege it was. So thanks for uh being awesome.
2: Can you believe
1: it's two hours
2: almost?
0: I felt like a minute.
1: I know, it's insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I really enjoyed talking to you guys. I, I learned so much, you know, when when I get to have a discussion like this and yeah, it's just, you know, it's fascinating. I love to do it.
2: Oh, I think it was great. I, I had a great time like I always do. And I always hate this moment when I have to say goodbye. But I guess we should be ending it sooner or later. <laughs> again, folks, you can find out more about it Dick Thompson at HPSYS.com. Dick, I can't thank you enough for doing this again for me. Thank you so much.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And Absolutely. Like I, yeah, I learn so much every time I come on the show. So, And, you know, Sean, if you, will, if you can send me your... um your email i'll get you that the link for the arsenal and you know carlos if you want it if you want to take it i'll you know i've got yours i'll i'll send it to you tomorrow and you can go out and do it so yeah just hold
2: on one second let's go ahead and sign off sean thanks again for joining me.
1: thanks for
0: having me pal
2: awesome stuff Mm -hmm. Thank you, everybody. You know what to do. Share, subscribe, hit that like button. You know we like it. And go check out SOG, codenamed Dynamite. Go get your copy today. Hey, I might even raffle off a copy for you. We'll see if we can figure that out. And go check out 11 a.m. Pacific Time, The Collective on YouTube. See you later, everybody.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?